Take your Bible and join me in Exodus chapter number one. Exodus chapter number one. It's been some weeks since I was together with you, but where we left off last time was a, an overview of Exodus, and I pointed out that there are seven sagas, seven stories that weave together the account given in Exodus. And Exodus is a, is a, is an amazing book, an amazing book. While you're finding Exodus chapter number one, our time will be spent in the opening verses, verses one through seven, as we go back now and uh, dive a little bit deeper into the sections of Exodus, looking again at that overall picture that there's a story of redemption and then a story of revelation. Redemption is how God brought Israel out of Egypt, out of bondage, and then the revelation he gave them concerning the laws that they were to have to govern their nation, he gave those at Mount Sinai. And the message I've simply titled here tonight, The Power of a Profound Report. The Power of a Profound Report, or if you'd like a subtitle, it would be uh, A Provoking Headline. The nation grows mighty. What a headline that would be. And think about uh, maybe if all of the news outlets today had that message about America. The nation grows mighty. What do you think that would do to the nations that aren't so favorable to us or to freedom and liberty or to capitalism? The nations that would lean towards socialism and communism and those kind of regimes. How would they, how would they like to read those news reports that our nation grows mighty? Well, I think that gives a correlation. We have seen firsthand the power that a news headline can carry. As I was immersed in uh, news that was beyond my control to be immersed in last week, I mean, I was on a roller coaster like everybody else, right? You, yeah, I, I mentioned this on Sunday. I try to start out my day with the Bible, and the first thing that I see when I open my eyes, I try to make it the Bible. And so I would be okay, and then I'd go sit down to eat my breakfast, and the news is on, and it's usually CNN or something like that. And then I come away from breakfast feeling like we're all going to die. And then the next thing I read is something that encourages me, and then I see the things going on around me, and it's, we're going to be okay. And that's the roller coaster, isn't it? We're all going to die. No, we're going to be okay. No, we're all going to die. No, we're going to be okay. No, we're all going to die. No, we're going to be okay. I sound like a broken record. We know the power, and we have seen firsthand the power that the media, the news media has. And the reason that I bring that up as, as uh, the title of my message tonight is because what we're reading, in essence, is a report. And I take Exodus by faith. I do not question whether the events were actually historical or not. I do not question whether Moses wrote the book himself. Because I see evidence all around when I study the Bible that Moses wrote Exodus and that even though we can't find any record of these things happening in the Egyptian writings of the day, gee, I wonder why they wouldn't want to write about their greatest defeat at, you know, these strange people living in their land. I don't know why we would ever not find any kind of material about them losing a whole battalion of their army in the Red Sea chasing these, you know, these Israelites. I don't have to wonder, I don't have to worry about, did these things really happen? I take by faith that this is a historical, historically reliable account of what God did. And it sets the theme for His power to deliver throughout the rest of the Scriptures. And so Exodus is a powerful, powerful book. But what we're reading in the first seven verses is a report. You are getting a first-hand report from boots-on-the-ground observation of what happened to this people group that left Canaan, went down into Egypt, and for, for these generations, under Joseph, they just populated everywhere in Goshen. What happened? Now we see the power of a report. The nation grows mighty. And I can see Pharaoh, you know, let's just pretend like he's the CEO of a giant corporation and he's sitting down to get his weekly reports. And he finds out that somewhere in his business, he's got this group of people that he's, uh, he's putting to work and they just keep growing and growing and growing. Those aren't really the reports that he wants to read that week. Because now it's getting to the point where uh, they might throw a coup and take over the whole business. 
in his mind. Okay, I'm being silly with that. But when he gets this report of how well Israel is doing, he gets concerned about it. Now you see the power of a headline. And so I've titled this, The Power of a Profound Report, A Provoking Headline, The Nation Grows Mighty. When Pharaoh, when the new Pharaoh received the, la- the latest census report on the population explosion that occurred over in Goshen, he begins to get worried because God's people are prospering. Did you know that when God prospers you, because you heed His word, and you do what the Bible says, and you begin to have joy and peace in your life, and, and things begin to work the way that God says they should, when you start doing well, I want you to know, you're going to make some enemies doing that. There will be some people that will not be happy with your success. I hate to burst your bubble, but it is absolutely true. We like to think that everybody would be on our side and cheering us on and saying, yeah, you need to serve God. I experienced this even when I went to college. I had people saying, you shouldn't go to that college. Why are you going to that college? You need to go to a state school where you can learn how to make a lot of money or you can stay here and you can get a scholarship to do this and do that. And I had people discouraging me from doing what I knew God called me to do. And so we can let doubt and fear call the shots or we can let the fear of God lead us and say, I will give an account to Him one day. And um, But we need to understand when God prospers us because we're heeding His word and we're following His will for our life, we're going to make enemies along the way. We're going to have people that, that aren't uh, so happy that we're doing well under God's prosperity. Let me give you some illustrations to prove that, some Bible illustrations. You remember old Jacob and Laban? Remember when Laban uh, got upset at Jacob, and not only Laban, but his sons especially were the ones that got really upset with Jacob? Why? Because Jacob prospered. The ring straked. Remember that whole incident with the cattle? And it seemed like everything Jacob did, uh, the Lord just kept multiplying. Now, I told you my take on that. I think it's nothing short from a miracle in that God was just blessing Jacob. And he was doing some things in his day that, you know, were uh, they almost come across to me as a little bit superstitious. You know, peeling the bark on the things. And when they look at the, the well, then they're going to bring forth ring straked or whatever. I just counted it as a miracle that God was blessing Jacob because he promised Abraham that's what would happen. And so, but Laban and his sons get upset because Jacob is following the will of God for his life and begins to prosper. We need another example. Well, let's fast forward in the life of Israel, in the history of Israel, and let's look at a king named Saul who gets very jealous when he starts hearing them, the women sing the Proverbs. Saul has slain his thousands, but David his ten thousands. And Saul became racked with envy and jealousy over David's blessing. And it wasn't anything David did. David was a man after God's own heart. He was just living for God, serving God. And Saul had it in for him. We need another illustration. Ahab and Naboth. That would be a good one, I think. Naboth was following the Lord. He was honoring the Bible. He was living in the portion that God had allotted to him. And when Ahab tried to get him to go against the word of God, Naboth stood up and said, no, I won't do it. And we know what Jezebel did after pouty Ahab went to his bedchamber and refused to eat. (laughs) Pouty Ahab. Okay, you see, Naboth made an enemy when he stood for the truth of God's word. And if you need some other examples, I might mention these names, Fernand Mondego and Edmond Dantes. Okay, the stories abound. Um, we, we today, we ride on the blessings of those that went ahead of us. Are you wondering who Fernand Mondego and Edmond Dantes is? Ask someone who likes to read and they'll fill you in on that story. We ride on the blessings Okay, I got I, I got to tell you now, don't I? Because you're wondering who is that? Edmond Dantes? You don't know the name Edmond Dantes? Thank you. There you go. Okay, somebody in here knows what I'm talking about. I'm just getting all these looks like, who's that? Yeah, Fernand Mondego and Edmond Dantes. Yeah, uh, Alexander Dumas. Just read him. You'll figure you'll figure out where that was. Okay, well, that was outside the Bible. That was a that was an extra biblical illustration of how. People can get jealous of our prosperity, right? We ride on the blessings today of those that went ahead of us. 
the obedience and the faith of our predecessors. Now, don't misunderstand me. Not everybody that in the previous generation was right with God. But by and large, when we look across our country, could we not agree and say that we had more Christian leadership in the previous generation than we do today? Could we not say that our founding fathers did what they did in faith in many ways? You know, I saw it firsthand when I was in D.C. And, uh, and the placard I told you about on Sunday over, over our first president's grave. It's a promise of the resurrection. It's a direct quotation of Scripture. We began as a Christian nation. And that was done by faith. It was done by faith. And we ride on the blessings of the preceding generation. But the time has come that our generation is going to have to appropriate our faith. Can God do it again? He delivered. He delivered us from the hand of Great Britain. Can He deliver us from the hand of those that would oppress us and try to take over our government from the inside out today? He's got enough to do it. I'd like to consider with you how to continue trusting God through times of oppression. I'm telling you, there's more going on today than meets the eye. Don't get sucked in to where you get blinded to see the greater, the greater picture of what's really going on in the world. There is a world system that is diametrically opposed to a biblical worldview and to Christian principles. And we cannot stay blind to that. And I want to help you understand that through it all, God's desire is to get glory. Glory, whether it's times of prosperity. How did we get this prosper? How do we get this prosperous? God did it. That's the testimony of Israel. There's no explanation as to how they, how they multiplied in the land this way. I mean, think about how different the stories of Exodus as it opens up is from Genesis. Pour through the pages of Exodus and tell me where you find a Sarah. Pour through the pages of Exodus and tell me where you find a Rebecca. Are you following me? What was Sarah's predicament? She couldn't bear children. What was Rebecca's predicament? Jacob or, or uh, Isaac had to pray for her that her womb would be open. And it was one child that Abraham was given as a seed of promise. And now we open up the book and it's totally flipped. Now it seems like uh, the miscarriages are, are, are next to none. And the women are able to bear and, and bring forth and the families are, are procreating and they are popular. It's just a population explosion. And so you see, there's no other explanation except God did it, especially in this day and time. God is working. So in times of prosperity, God gets the glory because if we give Him glory, that's due unto Him, we have to say we are where we are because God did it. And I can say that about Broomfield Baptist Church. It's nothing that I have done. Nothing personally that I have done. I have just believed God and God has blessed this ministry. And it's my faith that He'll bless it well beyond me that it will carry forward and He will continue to bless because we decided to build on His Word. And that's glory to God. You see, God wants to get glory from your life both when things are well and when they're not so well, temporally speaking. Is it not true that God will get glory from delivering His people from slavery? From setting them free? He got glory from them prospering. Can he not get glory from delivering them with a strong arm? Regardless of where it is, whether times are well or materialistically speaking, temporally speaking, not so well, God gets the glory. So as our generation faces difficulties because we become apathetic, and we begin to abdicate our civil responsibilities, and we begin to move out of arenas of power and influence, and we stop being salt and light throughout our land, and darkness begins to pervade and move in and take over. When we, when we go through the oppression that is coming, I'm telling you, I'm no prophet of the son of the prophet, but I can read what happened then, and I can know what's going to happen tomorrow based off what this is telling me. 
We are headed for oppression if we don't do something. In fact, oppression is already upon us in many ways, even right here in our own state. Lakewood case example. I can repeat it. Florists, artists, photographers, bakers, you name it. They're paying the price. They're paying the price. Whereas a generation ago, would have been unheard of. Would have been unheard of. Why? Because we are losing the religious liberty that life blood paid for in preceding generations. So we understand God wants to get the glory when things are good, when things aren't so good. But my question to you tonight, as we look at the opening verses of Exodus, what is God preparing you for right now in your life? In the midst of all this coronavirus stuff that's going on, mark it down. Nothing will be the same after this. This is unprecedented. I have never seen anything like this in my life. And we're going to have to go back probably 70 plus years to see anything on this scale that has impacted our country and our economy. I'm not minimizing how bad things could get. Whole airlines going out of business. Um, theaters shutting down, maybe to never open again. Things are going to get bad. Now, from what I understand, we have plenty of resources, so we don't need to freak out, okay? You don't need to go empty the shelves. Just wait, because there's still plenty of stuff around our country. It will get to us, and we'll get through the whole hoarding and all of this and the shelves being gone, because we have warehouses upon warehouses full of goods and food, and we're going to be okay. We just have to wait until King Super can move it from this regional warehouse to this regional warehouse. But you see, what I'm saying is things are different. What is God preparing you for right now in the midst of all of this that's going on around you? What is He preparing you for? Have you been walking in His Word? Have you tasted of His blessings because you're following His Word, then mark it down. When God's hand is on you, others are going to see it. And while you would think that they would be behind you for that, many of them won't be. And people can get very threatened by the very fact that God is blessing you and you seem to be okay. Have you uh, done anything to make the devil mad lately? Anything at all? Is there any reason why he should be upset with you? Or can he just bypass your whole life, your existence, because you're not really doing anything to stir up things for God? Have you done anything to make him mad? God's prosperity on in Egypt is going to prepare them for the oppression, the persecution by those who oppose the will of God. I'm going to make that argument with you tonight, and hopefully I'll validate it well enough that you'll be in agreement with me by the time we're done. Is Pharaoh looking for God's will to be done in Egypt? <laughs> or is Pharaoh diametrically opposed to the will of God being done? Not just in his own nation, but across creation. I mean, who does he think he is? Well, he thinks he's God. And Pharaoh's in this day and time were elevated to a position of deity, by the way. And so what you have, in essence, is a battle between the gods, between the Most High God and the gods of Egypt, namely the pharaohs. Who's going to come out victorious? Well, we know who, because there is none higher than the Most High God. But it doesn't change the fact that he, ra he raises himself to oppose the very will of God. Prosperity can prepare you. Prosperity can prepare you for persecution and oppression. We've been prosperous in our country, and now we stand on the brink of oppression. Let's take a note and look at the signs of the times. Oppression, then, can be a preparation for salvation. You see, God's not done. He's still working. He's still moving, and He's still on the throne. Salvation, however, is generational. Salvation is individual. We can't get to heaven on our grandparents' faith, right? 
I've witnessed to people, well, my grandparent, you know, my granddaddy was a Baptist preacher and that means I'm going to heaven. I'm sorry, but you're going to be dead wrong when you stand before God because you never appropriated the faith in Jesus Christ for yourself. You see, we can't get by on the preceding generation's faith. We must exercise it ourselves. You'll see that in these verses because the Lord was with Joseph and his generation and then they all died. And the next generation is going to have to have a mighty hand of deliverance and they're going to have to stand still and see the salvation of God. Just like Joseph was able to see the salvation of God for his generation to save many people alive, this generation now is going to need God to work on their behalf and they're going to have to believe him. You see, I'm preaching to the choir, aren't I? But the world can feel threatened when God's people prosper. And when the world oppresses God's people, He defends them. He delivers them. History shows us that. History proves the fact that God comes to the defense of those who are defenseless. And any time throughout human history you see His people being oppressed, being persecuted, and being uh, being judged and taken advantage of, you see God arise and take up their cause. Throughout history, that's the case. That's the way it's been. His true people have always been delivered in the end. Now, some of them have paid the ultimate price and paid the martyr's death for that. But it doesn't change the fact that God still gets the glory and He winds up bringing oppression on the oppressors. That's how He works. Isn't it interesting? The very, the very sons that sold their brother into slavery, now their sons are the ones that will wind up in bondage. The very ones. Ironic, isn't it? Divine irony, perhaps? Uh, The law of the boomerang, however you want to call it. As we look at the conditions for the backdrop of, of Exodus, we see the story picking up right where Genesis left off. I pointed this out some, uh, some weeks ago, but the word begins with a conjunction. And so does Leviticus, and so does Numbers. And so what you have, in essence, uh, the best way I can describe it to you is this is chapter number two of the big, long story that Moses wrote. Genesis would be chapter one, Exodus would be chapter two, Leviticus would be chapter three, Numbers would be chapter four, and then Deuteronomy kind of stands on its own in some ways. Uh, And we'll get to that when we cover that in about five years. (laughs) Yeah, at the rate I'm going, that's the way it'll get there. But praise the Lord, we're going to keep preaching. And so as we look at the larger narrative of Genesis, I want you to go back to... uh, Wait, before we do, Exodus chapter 1. I had you turn there. Let's read verses 1 through 7. Now these are the names of the children of Israel, which came into Egypt. Every man in his household came with Jacob, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. And all the souls that came out of the loins of Jacob were seventy souls, for Joseph was in Egypt already. And Joseph died, and all his brethren, and all that generation, verse number 7 says, And the children of Israel were fruitful, and increased abundantly, and multiplied, and waxed exceeding mighty, and the land was filled with them. Lord, I pray that you will help us understand your word tonight with clarity. And may the Holy Spirit lead and guide through the rest and the remainder of our study. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Turn back to Genesis chapter 46, keeping your finger in Exodus chapter 1. I'm going to read Exodus chapter 1, but I want you to have your eyes on Genesis chapter 46 and verse number 8. You're looking at Genesis 46 verse 8. I am reading Exodus chapter 1 verse 1. Are you there? Genesis 46, 8. Read that verse while I read Exodus 1, 1. Are you there? Exodus 1, 1 says, Now these are the names of the children of Israel which came into Egypt. Every man in his household came with Jacob. So in essence, what Moses is doing is going back to this list. And if you want a list that corresponds more directly, you have to go back earlier in Genesis 30. Uh, chapter 30-something, but you'll see them listed. And it's interesting to me how the names are listed. 
We notice, obviously, you know, right off who's missing in the list in Exodus. Why? Because later on, Moses tells us he was already in Egypt. But look at how it's listed. Now, I'm going to hearken back to the days of studying the Psalms with me. I want you to look for a chiasm. I want you to look for, uh, for something that revolves around the center. When we look at Hebrew language, I believe we're looking at a little bit of poetry here. Let's look at the list. If we were to line them out, on the first line, we have Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah. Line number one. Do you see that? Verse number three, we have Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin. Notice the ands, and it will help you. So line number two, we have Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin. Now line number three, we have Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Asher. So you see you have three lines, but who's right in the middle? Benjamin. Why is Benjamin right in the middle, do you want, Do you think? Because you see, Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Asher, whose, whose sons are those? Zilpah. Uh, yeah, <laughs> if we have Gad and Asher, that's Zilpah, Dan and Naphtali. So you see what we have is Leah's sons, and then we have uh, Bilhah's sons, and uh, Le- yeah, and then we have Rachel's sons right in the middle. That goes back to what we know about Rachel, Joseph, and Benjamin. So you see how it's listed. They're listed to where Benjamin, Rachel, is in the center. That's just a neat thing to to note. As we look at how the list falls out. We connect the story back to Genesis 46, 8. In essence, what we're doing is picking up in the Toledoth of Jacob. Now, we broke the book of Genesis down into the Toledoths. These are the generations of. These are the generations of. These are the generations of. Right? The generations of creation. The generations of Adam. The generations of Abraham. The generations of Isaac. The generations of Jacob. And we left off in the story of Joseph in the Toledoth of Jacob. Did I just lose you all? Are you still with me? These are the generations of Jacob. These are the sons of Jacob that came out into Israel, went down into Egypt with him. And the list is given. All the souls that came out of the loins of Jacob were 70 souls. The Masoretic text is authoritative. Here, 70 means 70. The Septuagint says 75. Stephen quotes 75. Who's right? They all are, yes. Uh, 75 if you count the sons of Manasseh and Ephraim, and that's what Stephen's doing. But here, uh, the, the count is 70. Speaking of this is the number, this speaks of a large group. 70 has significance in literature in this day and time. And so 70, 70 is a significant number. But you see, the story is picking up in that these are the sons of Jacob. From chapter 46, what did we miss? 47, 48, 49, 50. What did we miss through all of that? Uh, We went back and picked up right where we left off with Jacob. What happened in chapter 46? That's where Jacob went down into Egypt. So Exodus picks right up from where that left off without skipping a beat. Now we know how they got down there because we needed the rest of Genesis to fill that in. But Moses is going back to that where Jacob goes down. And now we've connected it with the larger portion. Israel's prosperity was a direct result of their obedience to the Word of God. Can you see how that falls out? They obeyed God's Word. God prospered them. Every time you obey God's Word by faith, you can expect to be blessed by Him somehow, some way. Now, I'm not preaching health and wealth, materialistic kind of social gospel stuff here. I'm just saying, when you obey, God blesses. Is that not true in just about every circumstance in life? If you disobey your employer, do you think he's going to bless you in the workplace? If you disobey your parents, are you going to have the favor of them upon you in the home? No. So when you obey God and His Word, you can expect His favor, you can expect His his blessing, because to obey is better than sacrifice. And God looks for that heart that trusts and that heart that says, I will do what you reveal. 
Israel's prosperity was a direct result of their obedience to the Word of God. Verses 1 through 5 reveal that to us. This not only goes back to uh, Israel's immediate context, but let me take you back even further to the very original command given to mankind by and large. Who can recall with me when we studied Genesis together what the command was in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 28? What is it? Be fruitful and multiply, replenish the earth. In other words, go and fill the earth. Now they did that, and then the heart of man's imagination was only evil continually, and God said, my spirit will not always strive with man. I'm going to wipe them off the face of the earth. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Hallelujah. And he says, Noah, go into the ark. That was after 120 years of preaching, the long-suffering of God. So Noah enters into the ark, and the world faces a cataclysmic judgment and all human race except for eight human souls perish. Noah steps off of the ark. And who can remind me the very first command that Noah receives as he gets off that ark in Genesis chapter 9, verse number 1 and 2? Anybody want to guess what that would be? What was the command that was given to Noah? Yes, go eat steak. I get that one. But what was? Replenish the earth. Be fruitful and multiply. Replenish the earth. Now track this theme. What happened in chapter number 10? Tower of Babel should ring a bell, chapters 10 and 11. And what were they trying to do? Stay in one place and not go? Not replace. They weren't doing what God told them to do. And what did God do? He came down and confounded their language and they were scattered. You see, God has ways of getting people where He wants them. And He has means to do that. So then we, we, we trace this obedience back to God's original command for mankind. You have to see this or you miss the larger argument that Moses is making here about Pharaoh and his wickedness. And the same wickedness dwells in the heart of many world leaders today, by the way. Because as far as I know, since Noah stepped off of the ark, that command hasn't changed. We can still eat steak, amen? (laughs) And in fact, since Acts Acts number 10, I can even eat pork. Thank God for that. I love bacon. Hallelujah. Okay, I want to be kind to my my Jewish friends uh, that still still refrain from those things. They're probably probably a lot cleaner than I am, okay? Uh, Anyway, but, but you see what I mean? So when we start taking measures as a society to limit God's command to go and replenish the earth, what do you think God's going to do? You think He's going to get involved like He did before? I think He has. I think He has. And I think we can even pinpoint it if we're careful students of history. We can find out how He has. But we have to be able to observe that with spiritual eyes. And the world calls us crazy for thinking these things, doesn't it? But the command remains, go and replenish the earth. So what is Pharaoh's concern? They're replenishing too much. They're getting too big. There's too many people. So what does he do? He begins to enact social policies to limit the amount of children that can be born. So who thinks they're God? Are there any other governments on our planet in this day and time that take the same kind of drastic measures against population explosions? Okay. Then I rest my case. Mark it down. God gets involved. God gets involved when governments rise up and try to tamper with His Word. God gets involved when wickedness in the heart of man begins to threaten the very life that He created. God gets involved. I am so thankful today that we are so close. and We are just on the cusp of the possibility of seeing Roe v. Wade overturned because the majority of the people in this country respect life and revere life and want to choose life. Let's pray for that to continue to happen. 
that some of these things can be reversed. We're on the brink of seeing the Bible coming back into public schools in West Virginia. It's happening because we have a pastor who is in the state legislature there as a delegate in West Virginia, and he passed a bill and it passed unanimously for them to teach the Bible in public school in West Virginia. Now, don't go moving out to West Virginia. We need you here in Colorado, amen? (laughs) But you see, you see, God can move. Israel's prosperity was a direct result of their obedience to God's word, his command to be fruitful and multiply. That's just generally to all mankind. But not only that, we can narrow it down to God's promise to Abraham. Genesis chapter 12. Let's just read some verses. Genesis chapter 12. You know these verses, but I want you to read them. I I want you to read them because it's important. I want you to see the connection. Genesis chapter number 12. Who are we talking about? What's the generations of Abraham? In Genesis chapter 12, verse 2. Read it out loud with me. And I will make of thee a great nation, and I will bless thee and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. Verse number 3, and I will bless them that bless thee, and curse him that curseth thee, and in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. Turn ahead to chapter 15. I have to turn two pages in my Bible. Chapter 15. Look at verse number 5. Read it out loud with me. And he brought him forth abroad and said, Look now toward heaven and tell or count the stars if thou be able to number them. And he said unto him, So shall thy seed be. Look at chapter 15. Read verse 13 with me. And he said unto Abraham, Know of a surety that thy seed shall be a stranger in a land that is not theirs, and shall serve them, and they shall afflict them four hundred years. And also that nation whom they shall serve will I judge, and afterward shall they come out with great substance. And thou shalt go to thy fathers in peace, and thou shalt be buried in a good old age. Verse number 16 says, But in the fourth generation they shall come hither again, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. You see what God is saying there? Look at chapter 17. It's on the same, uh, same pages here in my Bible. I don't have to turn anywhere. I'm going to read verse 1. Uh, you can just follow along as I read here. And when Abraham was 90 years old and 9, the Lord appeared, un- appeared to Abraham and said unto him, I am the Almighty God, El Shaddai. Walk before me and be thou perfect, and I will make my covenant between me and thee, and I will multiply thee exceedingly. Do you see that? I will what? And Abram fell on his face, and God talked with him, saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with thee, and thou shalt be a father of many nations. Did you hear that? A father of what? Many nations. Oh, that's too many for Pharaoh. Neither shall thy name any more be called Abram, but thy name shall be Abraham. For a father of many nations have I made thee. That's already done in God's mind there, if you look at the tense. And I will make thee exceeding, what's the word? fruitful, Exodus chapter 1 verse 7, fruitful, and I will make nations of thee and kings shall come out of thee and I will establish my covenant between me and thee and thy seed after thee in their generations, their generations, Abraham, not yours, their generations for an everlasting covenant to be a God unto thee and to thy seed after thee, and I will give unto thee, and to thy seed after thee, the land wherein thou art a stranger, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said unto Abraham, Thou shalt keep my covenant, therefore thou and thy seed after thee, in their generations. Who? His seed after him. Exodus chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. I want you to turn ahead to chapter 22, one more verse to read, uh, one, a couple more verses here to read, and then, and then we'll move ahead. But I want you to see these. Genesis 22, let's read verse 15 together. Read it out loud with me. And the angel of the Lord called unto Abraham out of heaven the second time, and said, By myself have I sworn, saith the Lord, for because thou hast done this thing, and hast not withheld thy son, thine only son, that in blessing I will bless thee, and in multiplying I will multiply thy seed as the stars of the heaven, and as the sand which is upon the seashore, and thy seed shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because thou hast obeyed my voice." Wow. Not just a general command to mankind to go and be fruitful and multiply, 
Israel was obedient to that. They were obedient to the direct promises of the covenant God made with Abraham. God's promise to Abraham. God's command to mankind. A third area. They were directly obedient to God's reassurance to Jacob. We've looked at it in the chapter, but I want you to look at the first verses. Genesis 46. Turn ahead to Genesis 46. And we see the account where Jacob is leaving Canaan. Genesis 46, verse number 1. And I read, And Israel took his journey with how much? All that he had, and came to Beersheba, and offered sacrifices unto the God of his father Isaac. And God spake unto Israel. Who spake? In the visions of the night, and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, Here am I. Watch his words. God says to him, And he said, I am God, the God of thy father. Fear not to go down into Egypt, for I will there make of thee a great nation. I will go down with thee into Egypt, and I will also surely bring thee up again. And Joseph shall put his hand upon thine eyes. And Jacob rose up from Beersheba. And and the sons of Israel carried Jacob their father and their little ones and their wives and the wagons which Pharaoh had sent to carry him. He took everything and he went down into Egypt. So when they went down, they were not only being obedient to the general command that God gave to mankind, being obedient to the promises that God gave to Abraham, they were being directly obedient to his reassurance to Jacob himself. And because they obeyed God's word, he blessed them. And you read verse 7 and you find out they were prospered under God because God did exactly what He promised He would do. When we obey His Word, we can expect that. That's the first thing that I note is that Israel's prosperity was a direct result of their obedience to God's Word. Secondly, I note with you tonight that Israel's peace during that time of prosperity had only lasted during that generation that was with Joseph. It was for that generation. You have to see that or else the rest of Exodus isn't going to be written. In verse number 6 of Exodus chapter 1, go and read it with me. It says, And Joseph died, and all his brethren, and all that generation. What happened when Joseph died? Oh, well, let's put the pieces together. While Joseph's generation lived, we read over and over and over again in the life of Joseph, did we not, that the Lord was with Joseph, the Lord was with Joseph, the Lord was with Joseph, and everything that Joseph did prospered because the Lord was with Joseph. Joseph died. Does that mean the Lord wasn't with them anymore? Well, no, God was there, but when the generation of Joseph died, the next verse says there arose up a new king which knew not Joseph. You see, things changed. And a new generation comes on the scene that doesn't know anything about the hand of the Lord being on Joseph, doesn't know anything about how the Lord prospered Joseph, doesn't know anything about him putting on his running shoes, doesn't know anything about him staying in prison, doesn't know anything about him interpreting dreams and that being given to him of God, doesn't know anything about how all that happened. No, this is a new Pharaoh that all he sees now is this people that's prospering, and now he feels threatened. So secondly, Israel's peace lasted during that patriarch's generation. And once the patriarchs were gone, the next generation faces oppression, and they must appropriate the salvation of the Lord for themselves. Thirdly tonight, I would note with you that Israel's prosperity was going to prepare the next generation for what the world would bring in that oppression. Verse number 7. Put your eyes on it, and you notice, what a description. Um, I think Moses is trying to make a point here. I count five things. Fruitful. Does that look familiar? Increased abundantly. Multiplied. Are you getting the point yet? No, because he goes on and says, waxed exceeding mighty. In Hebrew, that's um, uh, that, that's a double word. When you see exceeding, this is emphatic, and it follows in the foul. It's uh, it's um, 
well, I won't get caught in the technicality of the language. It's um, it's an accusative after a nafal, and so it's yeah, yeah. <laughs> exceeding mighty, exceeding mighty. They grew. You can see how Pharaoh would feel threatened. Notice what it goes on to say: the land was filled with them. You know, it talks about Solomon being filled with wisdom. The land was filled. The the uh, the word multiplied, increased abundantly. It literally means to swarm. Everywhere you look, there's Hebrews. Everywhere you turn, they're multiplying. Swarming all over the place. Swarming all over. Teeming with Israelites. Teeming with Hebrews. Because God blessed them in Goshen. There was plenty of pasturage for their shepherding. There was plenty of room for them to grow and multiply, and they did. And it's a total night and day difference from the barrenness that we encounter in Genesis. And here God's hand is on them. Would to God. Now I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be a preacher for a minute here and just say would to God by way of application. Would to God we could see this kind of explosion among <clears throat> believers today. Now I understand contextually they're procreating and that's how they're multiplying. But there's something to be said is there not for them passing their faith onto their children Would to God. May God give us more Pauls who can say, Timothy, my own son in the faith, because he led him to Christ. You see, we too can multiply. We're supposed to multiply. We're to go forth and, and, and preach the gospel to every creature. We're to be making disciple makers as we go. And you know, compound interest. We can reach our generation. Mathematically, it's possible. Just like they did in the New Testament, it starts with one telling one, and then two and four and eight and so forth and so on. It can be done. Would to God we could see this kind of multiplication. But I think we've gotten complacent in our apathy, and we're not witnessing like we should. Not only that, people aren't as receptive to the message because they don't feel like they need God in their life as they once might have when they had to rely on Him in a deeper way. And I, I saw this firsthand. You know, I've always heard the stories about it, but now I've experienced it firsthand. When I went to the Philippines, and my heart is burdened for them because they're on the brink of where we were, and it won't be long before they're just as calloused as we are when prosperity finally comes to them and they're no longer uh, living in some of the scenarios that they have to live in right now. But they're hungry. They're open. They want to hear the preaching of the Bible and they want to hear the Word. Try to do the same thing here. Drastically different results. Drastically different. And so, one of the reasons that the other side feels so threatened is because the numbers don't lie. Numbers don't lie. The facts are the facts. And can I tell you that across this land, in churches across America today, there are far more evangelical Bible-believing Christians than, than those that live without God. Even today in America, that's still the case. The problem we have is getting them to show up to the polls and getting them to sit on the school boards and to run for office and be in places of influence and even know how to cast their ballot. That's some of the challenges we face. But the numbers don't lie. And you have a, a very vocal minority that is running everything now because they have usurped these places of influence that we have abdicated. And so, you know, you have these liberal God-haters, and how are we going to stem that if we don't rise up, if we don't let our voice be heard and be salt and light? Well, let me close with just uh, some, some applications. Summarizing it all down. When we obey God's word, we can expect his blessing to come on our generation. There's hope. Just do what God tells you to do. Will you be willing to stand in the God in, into the gap? God expects his followers to go forth and multiply disciples. And when that happens and uh, godless world leaders arise, oppression of God's people is inevitable. And yet throughout the ages, history proves that anytime God's people are oppressed, he sends judgment on those that oppress them every time. And that's how it happens. We have enjoyed a time of relative peace from oppression. 
much because of the price that was paid by our predecessors who handed us this freedom of religion to us. But in our prosperity, our generation has in many ways forgotten God. We've become subservient to our own materialism. A generation ago, we had many leaders who at a minimum, at a minimum, held a closer, uh, closer to a biblical worldview. But now we have so many leaders that have arisen that they neither know God, many don't care to know Him. They seek to strip away our religious liberties. They seek to bring oppression on God's people. We cannot obey God's Word for the next generation. Not any more than they could obey the God, God's Word for us today. We must take it upon ourselves to heed His words. We must choose ourselves. It's time that our generation lift up our voice to God to get right with God, to learn what it means to truly trust Him for our deliverance, for our salvation. We have to be willing to confront those oppressive forces like Moses who stood in the face of Pharaoh, but he only did so in the name of the Lord, the meekest man on the face of the earth. We must be a generation who knows how to call on God for ourselves. We must have an assurance that the preceding generation had. We have to appropriate that, that if He did it for them, He can do it for us, and He will do it for us. The blessings we've received because of their faith, that will bring the constant threat of oppression upon us. And if we are not diligent, we will lose our liberty. We must rely on God to deliver us. No one else, no other thing. God has to be our salvation. Times are changing. Can you sense a change in the wind? I can. Things are changing. They'll never be the same after this. Things will be different. On every front, our liberties are being threatened. Oppression and bondage, they loom on the horizon. We live amongst a generation of leaders that know not God nor regard His people. Christians are paying the price for our faith every single day. Will we stand with them? Or will we remain apathetic to who will ultimately become our taskmasters? Will we just lay down and take it? Will we go along with it when they say, get rid of the straw and make your brick without straw? Will we just say, okay, it's too hard for me now and continue to complain and murmur? Or will we actually stand up and say something? Even if it means holding some grocery bags in front of some oncoming tanks, like a Chinese man did back in 1980-something. Yeah, who was that guy? I don't even know, but he was saved a bunch of kids because he was willing to do that. The only one. Interesting. Who will heed his call? Who will fast and pray? Who will occupy till Jesus comes? We've abdicated. Who will occupy? That's what we face. Who will join the local school board to bring biblical wisdom back to the education system? Who will join the local city council meetings to bring godly insight in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation? Who will occupy county and state offices to ward off the tidal wave of ungodly legislation? Who will cast their ballots for biblical values? Who will arise and say, we will let our voice be heard? We've been blessed beyond measure, but we've also abdicated many of our positions of influence and we're teetering on the brink of seeing everything our founding fathers fought for disappeared. My closing question to you tonight, what will you do for the next generation? It's not about us. What will you leave for a legacy to stay? You see these stones? Let me tell you what God did. That was a generation that experienced God's power that knew His presence. Hey, what's this all about? What's God going to do for us in the midst of COVID-19? What's God going to do to get Himself glory when times are good as well as when times are not so good? We can still trust Him.